Uh, I want to take the next couple of weeks and talk with you about Jesus. Is that okay? All right. I hope so. Uh, actually, we're going to be talking about Jesus in a very direct way, really all the way into mid-October. Um, I'll outline for you next week how that's going to work. But in the meantime, as I was thinking about the topic for this week, I thought of, um, I thought of a really old joke. And it's a joke that, that um, you know, there are some jokes that pastors tell all the time that you've heard like more than once at church probably. This is one of those jokes. In fact, most of you have probably heard it. This is, this is one of those jokes that is told so often by pastors and, and, and other Christian speakers that if you haven't heard this joke, you probably need to get back in church more because it's, it's really that popular. But the joke goes, and if you've heard it, just pretend to laugh at the end, you know, like it was funny, even though you've heard it eight times. But it goes like this. There was a Sunday school teacher, and she was teaching a lesson to her class about the importance of being prepared for the future, and she decided she wanted to give them an example or an illustration from the animal kingdom. And so she said, I'm thinking of something cute and furry that scamp- scampers around in your yard and has a bushy tail and collects nuts. What is it? And little Johnny tentatively raised his hand and said, well, it sounds an awful lot like a squirrel, but I'm sure the answer's got to be Jesus. Okay, you've heard, there, there's, you know, that's the joke. Well, believe it or not, and, and I think the point that that joke makes, if it makes a point, which it really doesn't, but if it did make a point, it would be that, that yes, even in church, there are some questions to which the answer is not Jesus. But um, it's also true that Jesus is the answer, and this is more getting to my point today. Jesus is the answer to a lot of questions that people are asking today, both inside and outside the church, and they don't realize Jesus is the answer. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to mess with your mind a little bit and give you, I'm going to give you at the beginning, usually I ask a lot of questions, and we... Um, we try to figure out the answer is how I like to kind of think and work in a lot of sermons. But we're going to do the opposite today. I'm going to give you the answer, okay? Jesus is the answer. So now that you know that, we're going to take the rest of our time and sort of figure out some of the questions. So it's going to be reversed. We're going to kind of play Jesus Jeopardy today. Okay, so I give you the answer. We'll figure out the questions. And if you, if you watch Jeopardy, um, you know, it's usually it's a real lame question they come up with, right? Like, who is Jesus or what? You know, we're not going to use that question. We're going to have to come up with some questions that have a little bit more information as part of them. But to do this little exercise, I want us to turn to the book of Colossians. Book of Colossians chapter 1. So turn there. Colossians 1. And when we get there, we're going to be reading verses 15 to 20. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And by the way, you will not see the name Jesus in here, but it'll be pretty obvious that he's the person that the Apostle Paul is talking about here, especially at the end. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." 
This is one of those sermons that started out as one week and turned into two. So today we're just going to look at the first three verses, and then next week we'll look at the next three verses. So today just 15 to 17, um, and we'll, get to, we'll cover the next ones next week, Lord willing. Um, I'm saying Lord willing a lot more after that, that sermon from James about five weeks ago where I said that we should say that more. Um, Paul had never actually visited the church to whom this letter is being written, the Colossian church. He hadn't been there. Uh, he didn't plant the church like he did some of the other ones to whom he writes letters. But he had, he had heard a lot about them. He was very thankful for them. He was excited about their church. But he was also very worried about them because the Colossian church was being infiltrated by some false teachers who viewed Jesus as just a created being. As he was an exalted and important being for sure, but they, they, they kind of situated Jesus in a hierarchy of other exalted spiritual beings, powers and principalities and different levels of angels. And they usually taught that Jesus was, was basically the first created being. This is very similar actually to a, a big heresy that came out in the next two or three centuries, the Arian heresy, which taught similar to that. And it's actually very similar to what some of the pseudo-Christian cults today say about who Jesus is. And it's a very dangerous teaching in that it denies the true deity of Jesus Christ. And that has all sorts of bad implications when it comes to the gospel and our salvation. And what Paul is doing here in Colossians is in these verses, he is attacking this false teaching head on. And he begins by calling Jesus the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. What does he mean by that? Well, um, the way John says it in, in his book, in, in John chapter 1, very similar to Paul's reasoning here. He says, he says, no one has ever seen God. Well, Paul says God is invisible. John says, no one's ever seen God, but God the one and only, or Jesus the only begotten of the Father, has revealed God to us. He's made him known. And Paul's wording here assures us that in Christ, in Christ, we experience all of God in all of his fullness. There is nothing in God that is not in Jesus. Let me say that again. There is nothing in God that is not also in Jesus. The Greek word for image here is, is not just a picture or a likeness, but it's an exact representation with all the details. We actually have a, a useful metaphor today in our world that they didn't have back in the first century because they didn't have computers and we do. But the Greek word for image here is the word icon, which is also the word, of course, we used to refer to those little pictures that are on our computer screen, on our computer desktop, that you click on to get access to the program that you want to run, right? And they represent the program. Christ is indeed the icon of the invisible God. Just like clicking on that that icon on your desktop opens up all the functionality and allows you to access all of the content of that whole program, which you can't really see. Through Jesus, we get access to the whole program of God, if you will. All the details, all the function, all the power, all the glory, all the wisdom, all the holiness, all the love, all the grace, all the mercy. Everything in God is included and accessible through Jesus there is nothing in God that is not also in Jesus. Therefore, just by a simple logical deduction, Jesus is the one true God. He's God. And Paul goes on to highlight Jesus' role in creation. He says, for by him, all things were created. Notice how Paul doesn't say all other things were created. 
because Jesus is not included. And Jesus is not a created being. He says all things were created by Jesus. John, John also agrees with this in chapter 1 of his gospel again. John says it this way, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Exactly what Paul is saying here in Colossians. I think we get used to thinking of God the Father as the almighty maker of heaven and earth. And he is, and it appears that way in our creeds like that. And so sometimes because we get used to thinking that way, I think we, I think we relegate all creative activity to God the Father. But the Bible makes it clear that both God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were also intimately involved in creation, in creation. And, you know, the theologians derive all sorts of formulas and ways to try to understand how this works. And, and, and for instance, you'll, you'll hear it said that everything is done from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. You may have heard that one. It's kind of helpful. Or you may hear something like this, at the command of the Father, through the work of the Son, by the power of the Spirit, how the, how the Trinity kind of works together in these things. And I'll let you kind of, you know, ruminate on that today over lunch. Uh, it may blow your mind. But, you know, there are worse things to think about over lunch than the character of God, so you can do that. But the emphasis here is on Jesus, Jesus, as having personally created all things. All things. That's a critical phrase in this passage. And you'll see it again down in verse 19, and again you'll see it next week. But all things. Look around the room. Everything you see in this room. Everything that, that you lay your eyes on when you leave this building today. Every person you meet today was created by Jesus. Was created by Jesus. So, so, you know, what are the questions that people are asking today? What are the questions that the scientists are asking on behalf of us all? What are they asking? Where did all this come from? They look around the world. They see the whole universe. How did it get here? What accounts for all of this diversity, for all this beauty, for all this complexity? Where did it come from? And you know what? If we're being honest, we have to ask this question too. What explains all of the ingenious and intricate design we see all around us? How is all this possible? The answer to the how question is Jesus. How did we get here? Jesus how did all this diversity in creation show up? Jesus. Who is behind all of this design and purposeful function that we see all around us? Jesus. Yeah, it's not just a how question anymore, right? It's a who question. That's important. It's a who question. And Jesus is still the answer. But there's more. It goes further than that. Because Jesus, Paul says, didn't just create the material world. He also created the immaterial world. All the things that exist and we can't see, which would include a lot of things. It would include, for instance, things like the principles that govern creation. Things like, get ready to go back to high school. Planck's constant. Avogadro's number. Remember that one? In chemistry class, all the stuff we forgot from chemistry and physics, you know, the, the charge on the electron, all of these constants, all these things were created by Jesus and set by Jesus. Beyond that, beyond that, and this is really Paul's point, I think, all the spiritual beings that influence our world 
and exercised different degrees of authority, expressed often through human leaders and world governments. But these, these spiritual beings that are operating behind the scenes all the time, they were all created by Jesus. He is not on par with them. He is not included in their organizational chart. He is off the chart. He made the chart. Jesus created the being that later became Satan. He's part of the chart. Jesus isn't. Jesus is unique. He is the creator God. There is no equal to Jesus in all of the universe in either the physical world or the spirit world. But there's more. Because Paul also tells us that in him, all things hold together. All things hold together. So what keeps the earth from flying off its axis? How do the stars stay in place? What keeps the expanding universe from flying apart? Scientists have discovered a lot of the means by which this happened. They've identified gravity and electromagnetism and the weak and strong nuclear forces. And, and they point to a big bang. And they may be right about that. But if, if there was a big bang to, 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 to form the universe and, and that big bang happened at a specific point in space-time, then we can't help asking this question, right? Who lit the fuse? Because think about it. That, that has to be a who question, doesn't it? Why did it happen when it happened and the way it happened? That it had to be initiated by someone's independent will. It has to be a who question. Who started the clock ticking? Who makes sense of everything, enabling us to at least partially understand the universe and predict some of its behavior? Why do we have a cosmos instead of a chaos? Jesus, Paul says, is the answer to all of these questions. And he was not only involved in the past, in, in creation, Jesus remains active in the present, holding the universe together, keeping everything running, overseeing everything from the largest galaxy to the smallest subatomic particle. In him, all things, there's that phrase again, all things are held together. But there's more. Because Paul identifies Jesus not only as the source of all of creation. But Paul also says he's the firstborn over it. The firstborn. Now wait, you might stop and say, oh, okay, time out. How is it possible that someone who is eternal and has no beginning, because that's what eternal means, and we're saying Jesus is God, so Jesus must have had no beginning, so how can it be said that he was born? Isn't that a contradiction? Well, no, it's not. And, you know, the theologians from way, way back in the first few centuries of church history had to wrestle with this. And they'll talk about how Jesus was begotten, not made. And though he proceeds from the Father in some sense, Jesus has no beginning. Rather, he is eternally begotten. Some more stuff that will blow your mind. But that's not Paul's point in this passage. Paul isn't talking here about time. He's talking here about priority, privilege, and ownership. The firstborn son in a family had some unique rights and responsibilities when it came to both inheriting things and overseeing things. He had the birthright. 
and that made him the eventual leader of the family. And in a royal family, in a royal family, as in the case of, you know, God the Father, King of the universe, the firstborn would also inherit the throne. And Paul takes this privilege of the firstborn here to the extreme in the case of Jesus because look what it says at the end of verse 16. I hope you didn't miss it. That all things were created not just through him, but what else? For him. For him. This is the ultimate expression of privilege and ownership. This is no ordinary birthright. This firstborn, being the only begotten of the Father, inherits everything. You know what this means? It means that in addition to being the answer to the how questions, like how did the universe come into being, and the who questions, like who holds all of this together, Jesus is also the answer to the why question. The question that the scientists probably should stay away from, but they try to go there anyway sometimes. Why was the world created in the first place? Why is the universe filled with billions of galaxies? The answer is for Jesus. For Jesus. It's all for Jesus. In fact, the answer to another big question a lot of people ask, and we should ask probably more, namely the, the, the question, why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Why am I on this earth? Has the same answer. Jesus You and I are here for Jesus. We are part of the Father's gift to the Son. We are part of his inheritance. We belong to him. Jesus stands to inherit all things, and therefore he has an ownership stake and an interest in all things, and all things certainly includes you and me. And if we really take this to its logical conclusion, and if I take this expression, all things at face value, then all things would include not just me personally, but every plan, every possession, every relationship, every decision, every activity that I'm involved on, and every in, and everything that's important to me up to and including my very own life. Does Jesus' ownership and privilege extend to those things too? And if so, what does that mean for you and me who claim to follow him? I came to faith in Jesus when I was in fourth grade. Um, And for the next 10 years or so, in in what you'd call that first phase of my Christian journey, Jesus had an important, if somewhat limited, place in my life. It would not be fair to say that I walled Jesus away in kind of a corner of my life because I, I actually think that no true Christian can do that. You see, when we come to Christ, when we come to Christ, we not only receive him as Savior, but we also receive him as our Lord in this sense. Think about your life as a house with different rooms in it. We, if, if your life is a house with different rooms in it, what you do when you, when you come to Christ is you hand the keys over to him at that point. And, and our, our intention at that point is that he gets the run of the place. He can go in any room he wants to. He bought it so he can have it. He died for my sins on the cross. He paid a debt I could never, ever hope to pay. And if I'm trusting him with my internal destiny, then I should be able to trust him with the details of my life on earth, I would think. Now, That doesn't mean that he doesn't have to fight you to get into some of those rooms sometimes, right? 
Our old human nature is very powerful and sometimes the flesh takes over and we build barricades. We pile up chairs and tables against the doors of some of those rooms in an effort to keep Jesus out of those rooms. The money room, maybe. The recreation room. The party room. The love and romance room. But even if we're somewhat conflicted about these things, at some level we know we're rebelling. And at some level we still have this understanding that it's Jesus' right to get into that room and to have his way with it because it's part of our life and, and he died for us and he owns us. And for the first 10 years of my Christian life, I would say that Jesus was, he was more than just a section of my life. I didn't have him walled off in one little room, but he was, he was, he was the foundation Jesus was the foundation of my life. I knew that he had to have first place. I knew that if push came to shove one day, if I had to choose between Jesus and some other priority, I, I would have to keep Jesus. But at the end of the day, I knew. He was my savior. He was my Lord. I belonged to him. But at the same time, I didn't really think about Jesus all that much. He was more of a stopgap in some ways than than, than someone that was just a regular part of my thinking. Oh, I prayed somewhat regularly. Most of, most of the time, I prayed just for the basic needs that a teenager has, right? God, help me to do well in school. Please, please, for heaven's sake, take this acne away. You know, did you ever pray that one? That was a big one. But, but you know, most of the time, I just lived my life doing whatever came to mind and took whatever I thought was the best course of action. I was, I was not consciously excluding Jesus, but I wasn't really considering him either. And it would be hard for me to say that I was really worshiping him. But then about halfway through my time at college, I, I ran into some people who talked about Jesus more than I did. And not just at church or at a campus fellowship meeting or something like that. They, they would talk about Jesus like in their dorm rooms. And it was almost like Jesus was, was part of their regular life. He was part of their academic life. He was part of their entertainment life. He was part of their dating life. They would, they would pray with their roommates sometimes and with other Christian friends about all sorts of things. And, and this was, was not some sort of showy fanaticism. It was just normal life for these people. And this intrigued me because I had never lived like that. And, and I had recently had a kind of crisis in my own life in which I had rededicated myself to the Lord. And so it got me thinking, maybe this is like the normal Christian life. Like considering Jesus in everything. Bringing everything to him. Not just using him as a stopgap if everything else fell through. Because ultimately his interest in the details of my life, it's, it's real. It's not just theoretical. I was starting to come to terms with the idea that this Jesus who I knew as the Jesus of John 3.16, the Savior who died on the cross, Jesus, was also the Jesus of Colossians 1, the, the, the no limits, no boundaries, firstborn of all creation, Jesus, the maker and owner of everything. But you know what? Another really cool thing I came to discover was this, this exalted Jesus of Colossians 1, this great being, was also the forgiving Jesus of John 8. He was also the friend Jesus of John 15. He was the meek and compassionate Jesus of Matthew 11 who invited the weary and burdened to come to him for relief. He was the same person. 
the firstborn of creation, the limitless master of eternity, was also my older brother, my champion and protector. And he wanted to be my best friend. That still sometimes kind of blows my mind. I don't know if it blows yours. Now, um, we'll fill in more of the picture of this next week because we're going to look next week not just at Jesus as creator, but Jesus as redeemer. And so we'll see some new things for sure next week. But for now, I wonder where you are this morning in your understanding of who Jesus is and how his ultimate lordship and ownership relates to your everyday experience, or does it? Do you ever consider that Jesus actually owns your time, your stuff, your kids, your spouse, your other relationships, your calendar, your very life? Another way to ask this more abstractly, I suppose, is do you realize the supremacy of Christ in everything? And that's probably a hard thing to come to grips with for a lot of us. I think it is that we don't really own ourselves. You know, you don't really own yourself. But you're ultimately created for someone else's benefit. You're created for Jesus' benefit. That idea really flies in the face of how we think of life today. But if it's really, if it's really true, if that's really true, and if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, and he really loves you in such a fierce way that he would give up his very life for you, if he's that kind of person, and if Jesus is really the answer to the how questions and the who questions and even the why questions about the nature of the whole universe, then wouldn't it be kind of exciting to get involved in what he's doing and, and not just be lost in our own puny little plans? Wouldn't it be more meaningful to trust in Jesus for all things? Wouldn't it make sense to just give him the pen and allow him to write your story into his instead of the other way around. Let's pray and we'll spend some time just responding in worship and giving our lives to him.